Please be seated. We're continuing through the Gospel of John together, and it's a fantastic Gospel, and we're only in chapter 2, so if you'd like to turn there and, and be with us in the text, but it's a, it's a fabulous and amazing thing that goes on today in our Gospel account. So, you know, Jesus is something new. And sometimes when we sing songs, we know the Sunday school answers, and he, he feels like, yes, I've always known Jesus and always known these things about him. But, but to really understand, if I said Jesus is something new, well, how do you know what that new is? Well, I know what something new is by looking at the old. <laughs> I do, because I'll take an example even right here. I was watching as we watched. You're watching our projector screens, and they're, they're 10 years old, these projectors. If you have to squint to see the image, I get it. We've changed the lights. We've done all sorts of things. You know what we're doing this week? We're getting new ones. And so you'll be able to see the contrast between the old and the new, right? Hopefully it'll be a good thing. <laughs> we'll see. But the whole idea, right, is we kind of we gauge what the new thing is by what the old thing was. So you know what the new thing is you're looking at or trying to get or whatever it is, right? So that's important today. Because I'll I'll tell you, sort of living the best life you can is not new. We judge each other on sort of how we're doing with our responsibilities. We defend ourselves. We sort of deem ourselves righteous or having reasons why we failed in our duties. We lift up those who have ability, those who are wise, those who are strong, those who have succeeded. We want to be like them. We we, we try to find out how to improve. And and that's not new. That's always been. And I, 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 a lot of Christians, what we spend a lot of our time sort of with advice on how to avoid sin, right? How to avoid alcohol. How to avoid being angry. How to be a better parent. How to work hard. And, and, and these are, these are good things. They're old. It's always been so, right? So it's vague, you and I, how we think about ourselves, how we think about what life is. We think about, well, well, well what's the way we're supposed to? It's just, that's the thing. It's, but the thing that we think about in terms of living is an old thing. The whole system. Too often what we try and do is we try and bring a little newness into the oldness. That's really what I just did with the projectors. Just going to be the same thing, only better. But what if all of a sudden you came next week and poof, there are no projectors. It's something entirely new. That's the kind of new we're talking about. Lasers. No. So, the, but, but really in our lives, to, to go bigger, right? To know that Jesus is something new. He's not the old. He's not for those who have hope in themselves, who need an extra tool for some additional energy to make life go better. He's not clean water to wash off your hands because they're dirty, but all you're underneath, you're clean. He, he's, he's not the way, interested sort of in our extra offerings, in our presenting ourselves before God, improving our devotion. He offers himself to you. And that's new. <laughs> like that's why I'm calling this particular message. We're calling it Neon Signs of Life because right here at the beginning of John, and I'll tell you what, it's amazing and should be very remarkable. John is a book of signs. It's not a chronological narrative of the life of Jesus, you know, how he was born and what he... No, seven signs. 
And whenever you have a group of signs, which is John's book, we're going to see the first sign today. And the first one's way important. That's the Greek mindset, right? You put your strongest, most important signs first and last. That's exactly what John did. One of the most remarkable signs you will ever see of God this morning. And it's one we normally just kind of gloss over because we don't really get it. I want you to get it. I want to see something new. So we're going to see neon signs of life. They're shining at us today, and they impact us with this idea. My life is something new. My life is found in something new. It starts with wine at a wedding. We're going to look at two scenes here. We're going to do all of chapter two, so buckle in. But they all go together, and I'll show you how. It's really an amazing text, and you don't want to miss. John does these things on purpose. He's writing these things with this in mind that we not miss the images he's giving us, the signs of Christ. Okay, so we pick it up. The curtain's going to go up. It's a new scene in our, in our gospel account. On the third day, writes John, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Okay, so when the curtain comes up, the first word you hear, on the third day. That's not a mistake. It's not John says, well, I want to be very specific with exactly what Jesus, because we're going to have a fourth day and a fifth day, and then we're going to go to the seventh day. He never does that. He wants you to see is this the signs of Jesus. This is on the third day. That should niggle you, and by the end of today, I hope you see why. But on this third day, and to them, the Hebrew idiom is third day twice blessed. That comes out of Genesis, you know, because you look at the Genesis account, and it says, and God saw that it was good. He blessed the day, kind of. And on Tuesday, the third day, he does it twice. Other people think this third day, you know, is about how how we've had uh, certain days where John saw Jesus, and now a couple days have passed, and now it's the third day, and they think this day is the day after the Sabbath. Something happened on that day. So here we are. John does something incredible. There's this wedding, though, in Cana. The whole family's there, including Jesus, right, and his mom. I want to point the, paint that picture because it's not really, I think, okay, he had to go to a wedding reception. Bummer for him. I'm a guy. And if you're a guy, you know this. It's like the wedding reception. Oh, when do I get to go home? Sorry. If you ever like a wedding, I'm, I'm a little bit like, oh, okay. We did the main piece, which is the wedding. Now we have to wait here for a few minutes, and then, dear, time to go. I mean, let's get out of here. Not like that here, because their wedding was a wedding feast, right? So when you had a wedding, they didn't have Netflix. You don't have TV. You don't, this is the entertainment of the week. And so guess what? It lasted a week. So they would come, and you would have feasting, and you would have fellowship, and you would have, there was the community event. It was like, it was like Mardi Gras kind of idea. It's like, hey, the whole town, there's a wedding happening. This is the social event of the year. Come on, everybody, party. Jesus is invited. He's from the town there. You know, remember we said last week, it's like concrete. It's like everybody knows this little tiny town. It's Canaan, Galilee. So, hey, come on over, and we're coming over to your house, and we're partying, celebrating. Revelry, rejoicing, a major event in the life, not just of the bride and groom, but of all the families and the communities. And, and one of the things was that the, the family there had to provide food and drink. Really a big expense. People really went at it. And, and that's what Jesus is at. His, 
family and his disciples at this feasting time and people are celebrating. And <sighs> I've been to a few of those. You've been to anything like that where people are really celebrating? I start to get a little sad because when people celebrate a lot, there's a lot of stuff called excess. They drink too much. They do too much stuff. They're a little too rowdy. I don't like it very much. I start going, look at that guy making a fool. Look at that person. They're making a fool of themselves. They should stop with the revelry. I'm waiting for Jesus to lay down the hammer. Because that's kind of what I would do, right? And people's vices come out. Their hair gets down. They get a bit sloshed, if you will. And I want you to see, this is important. Jesus is there, and he's not in the catacombs studying the text of the Bible. He, he, he's not in deep contemplative prayer in a forest grove. He's at the party, surrounded by people who are more likely a bit less than totally sober. So easy to call people out, right? Easy to speak some judgment. Easy to be like, well, nothing I would ever do. I wouldn't do that. And here's Jesus right in the middle of it. Interesting to see what he does. So it says there on verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Oh, bummer for them. The implication is, right, they've ran through all their supplies. They just reinforce this, right? There's a lot of drinking going on. It wasn't like you'd say, we're having a wedding, we just get a little bit because it's a week-long feast. I'm not, wait, we're out? Oh, no. It's embarrassing to the family who's providing it to their guests. There's not enough, Right? Not enough for everyone. There's a lack. And, and maybe because the parents who put on the celebration aren't wealthy enough. They don't have enough resources. They've scraped and saved and done the best they could. But it wasn't enough for everyone really to have all they wanted. I don't know why Mary takes an interest in this. We're not given that because Jesus isn't the family. People guess, you know, in the text. Jesus, Jesus though, doesn't really seem to know either. Because <laughs> look what he says. He says... Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I'm not in charge of this. My hour has not yet come. The mom says back to him, Mary says back to the servants, he said, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> this is really interesting. Jesus is kind of like, not my deal, my hour hasn't come, and isn't time for my public ministry. It's coming for sure, but it's not now. And his mom doesn't even listen to him. Wait a second, this is like every mom everywhere. No, wait, no, no, sorry, moms. Do whatever he tells you to the servants, right? Sounds like a mom. So take control, tell her kids what's best, and of course, you know, the problem and the difference is that Jesus is actually God, so he's on a mission, a mission of salvation and wonder. He's not going to stop for this, right? Well, we're kind of surprised. I mean, I, I am. Because here's the miracle. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so there it is, right? You know this story if you've been around Christianity. All Jesus turned water into wine. It's really good wine. <laughs> so much so that the major domo, right, the master of the feast, he's blown away. I, I thought you were out of wine. You had none left. and said you got great wine. And we're like, yay, Jesus, he makes the best wine. And off we go. Wait. Wait, wait, wait. There's something here not to miss. It's remarkable. It's not just that Jesus makes wine out of water. That's a miracle for sure. I can't do that. You can't do that. Boom. It's not just that he makes 900 bottles of wine, which is what he does. That's how much wine he made. That's a boatload of wine. By the way, giving it to people already a little sloshed, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of give the good stuff first. Give the good stuff first because once you've had a couple glasses, I don't know this myself, don't look at me, but once you've had a couple glasses, maybe you don't really know what good and bad is anymore and you can have the bad stuff. Tastes just the same. And the feast guy's like, wait, why, did, why are you doing this? This stuff's awesome. We looked it up on Google this morning. Most expensive normal bottle of wine is about $20,000. Jesus did a lot of you know, economic stuff right there. 900 bottles at 20000 bottle up because it's going to be the best you've ever made. It's actually the best wine ever auctioned is $550,000. This is better. God made it. Gives it out to people. It's certainly interesting, right, that what Jesus does, you know, he's, it's interesting that Jesus isn't interested in moralizing. He's not interested in calling them out on the dangers of excess drinking, which would be a fine thing to say. There's great danger there, and it's a sinful thing to do. The wonder, though, the wonder is this. John says it for us. Don't miss it. This is the Bible. This is the first of his signs. This whole book of John is a book of signs. There are seven of them, eight if you count them a certain way. And their stress is often, though, on the first and the last, right? So this is the first. This is the first. It manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. It's not because he made an expensive bottle of wine. What's he doing? What did they see? What should you see? What are they believing? So I, I know, we go jump right to, well, they're believing that Jesus did a miracle. Yes, he did. This particular kind of miracle. What is it? This miracle in the midst of perhaps debauchery. What did he do exactly? Okay, so take it a little more slowly with me. He took six big stone containers. They were for the Jewish ritual of purification. John doesn't throw that in because he just likes details. It means that the family that he's doing this in is a priestly family. Because they would get, so what they would do is they would get clay bottles. Clay. Because they were cheap. And you wash with those. But if you were in a priestly family, you had these beautiful big stone ones. And it was used to do the ritual washing to get yourself clean. So why would you need to do that? So you could go into the presence of God. 
you would wash yourself. You'd wash yourself to do a variety of tasks because you were showing that you wanted to purify yourself and you did that by washing yourself. Not unlike what we do. We do a lot of, I mean, right now, everybody, I know all of you guys used the hand sanitizer when you came in. We wash ourselves, right? So there's big, huge, six big stone containers for, to, for this Jewish rite of purification. And John's even very clear to point out, this is the Jewish rite. The stone vessels, you see, they're not, they're not covered or they don't need to be concerned about the impurity laws of Leviticus 11. They're already clean in themselves. They're super expensive in the, in the season that they were made. So there's this picture of these amazing expensive stone jars full of water to make yourself clean, to keep the law, to keep the commandments, to keep yourself wash. Purity, it's about who we are and what we do. And here comes the Lamb of God, right? Who will take away the sin of the world. That was chapter 1. And what sin of the world is he taking away? Our impurity. And so he takes this water that's for ritual washing and he, boom, changes it on the third day when he's there to the most abundant, amazing amount of fantastic wine that you can have. What do you do with wine? Do you wash your hands in it? No. Somebody's nodding their head. No, I'm, I'm going to tell you today, this is a good lesson. Do not wash your hands in wine. You drink the stuff. You take it in. You sip it. You marvel at it. You, but, 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 but you don't, what you do, you may lick it, you may smell it, whatever you do, but you drink the stuff. You take it into your body from outside of you. Jesus took what you're going to do to wash yourself so you can stay clean, and he made something abundant and marvelous, like a fountain, so much as 900 bottles, boom, of you to take in. Everybody gets them. There's so much you can have it. To take in yourself of his gift of a miracle. <laughs> this is the sign you need to have. Not how do you stop drinking. Look at the drink. He comes to the feast where there's not enough. He comes and changes the purification that you work for into purity that he gives by his blood. That's wine, right? I mean, that's why we do communion. That's why I use grape juice. The whole idea is that wine is his blood. So it's not any longer, how you doing? It's not any longer, do you have you enough? It's not any longer, how much of a saint have you been? But only do you receive this amazing, abundant overflow of what he's done. This is the first sign. Undeserved request, undeserved wine, undeserved blessing. You think this is too strong. You think we're reading in. Okay, the chapter's not done. You need to put it with the other picture. This is the other flashing neon sign. Let's take a look. I want to look at the tirade in the temple that goes right along with this. Jesus is amazing. This is our Savior. He's at work. So it says this. It says, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So there the the whole group heads down to Capernaum. There's this special feast, you see. It's called the Passover loaded feast because it's about the lamb. 
Here comes Jesus. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That sounds like a verse we run over, but let me just, again, set the scene for you. Jesus is heading up with thousands of other people now. There are thousands of people every year that would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over because it was such the time that you would you would celebrate and, and this ritual that you would do and the feasting that you would do. And, and people would gather all Jews from nations all around, from Syria or from wherever they were, and they would come to Jerusalem. And on the way, they would sing songs. We read one of them this morning, Psalm 121. A song of ascent. As you walked up, you would sing these songs. The Lord keep us. The Lord be gracious to us. The Lord give us peace. The Lord do all these things. And Jesus is singing these songs. And I get chills because he's the one that's going to save everybody. He's God's fulfillment of all these songs of ascent. How the Lord cares for us. Here's the Savior of humanity in the place where he's going to save us. His first, and it's only chapter two of John. He's just beginning, but this, this amazing piece, it's connected to the sign, the one we've just had, water into wine. Because he goes at the Passover of the Jews into the temple of the Jews. His temple, where they worship him. That's what it says, in the temple. Verse 14. Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there. Okay, right away, I think, ooh, evil people. I just want to point out the text doesn't say they're evil. There's nothing in this text that says, oh, these bad people, they're cheating and stealing and doing still wrong things. There's every indication, if you start thinking about what was going on in the temple as Jesus comes in, what would happen in the temple is the temple had a very special inner court called the Holy of Holies. Then they had another court that was where the, the Jewish men could go in. The inner court of the temple. And then there was the outer court of the temple. It's called the court of the Gentiles. And, and that's where on this season for the Jews, where you would come in and you would need to make sacrifice, either if you were very poor, a bird, like a dove or pigeon, or, or, or if you were, had more money, a lamb or sheep, there's things that you could do to offer to God. And where are you going to get that? You come to Syria. You didn't walk into Jerusalem with your 12 little lambs. You went to the temple and you bought one. Dude, providing a service, we call it capitalism, where you say, hey, I've got it, I want to help, I want to help these people, they want to go ahead and serve, I'm going to sell. So there's not this sense of, oh, these horrible, horrible people. The people are paying, by the way, very interesting too, they're paying a prescribed tax. You had to come in, and once a year there, you're paying, paying your prescribed tax. It was a half a shekel you had to pay to redeem your firstborn or to do whatever you're going to pay. You couldn't give a coin that had another deity on it to the temple. Here, let me give God my coin that has a, a Zeus on the front. So you changed your money. You changed it to one that was a preferred coin that didn't have an image of a, another god on it, and you paid that. that that's what they were doing, right? And Jesus, here, <laughs> Jews coming all over, it's mingled, there's lots, it's the court of the Gentiles, and all of a sudden, Jesus goes on a tirade. This is an account that's in every gospel, but it's only, only here, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in this gospel account. 
Every other time, it's something else is going on. So I think this is actually a second time. It's, otherwise, John has just plucked it out of where it was in every other gospel account. And it's real clear when it was and all of that. It's in the last week of Jesus' life. And torn it out and put it here at the beginning. Why would he do that? No, because Jesus did it twice. Because here, Jesus takes a cord. Only place. Look what happens. Let me show you. Making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he overturned their tables. Whoa. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So when you see this, don't think immediately, oh, there's Jesus taking the bad people and kicking them out. See that Jesus has come and he's doing away with something. What does this link to? Those stone, violet water that gets changed into something new. What's this a symbol of that's going on right now in the temple? The old stuff. What's that? Getting things to present to God to say you're good enough. That's what's going on in the text, right? Jesus says, wait, the court of the Gentiles is the Father's house too. He's come to save the Jews and the Gentiles. This outer court is as important as the inner court. And and I'll tell you what, it's not about you buying things to present to God to keep yourself clean. You don't have enough coin. There aren't enough animals. It's going to change. Pour it out. He has such zeal. It's probably a quote of Psalm 69.9. Look at this. It's amazing. So it says, he says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. That's what they're remembering. Oh, zeal for your house has consumed me. But read the second part of that verse. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The reproaches of those who reproach the Father, that's your evil and your sin, have fallen on me. He's going to take all that stuff they were doing and do away with it. Because the hope that we have is that the reproaches that we bring, we don't pay for, we don't get rid of, we don't get a sheep and sacrifice it. They fell on Jesus who took all our sin, paid for it on the cross. This is the one who takes the purification water and makes abundant wine. This is the one who comes to his temple and has such zeal that the reproach will fall on him. This is the one who includes the Gentiles. Do you see what John is saying? The very beginning of the gospel, the first of his signs. What's the sign? Water into wine. But but what's that sign? Look. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it's been taking 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scripture, which in the word that Jesus had spoken. We all know Jesus died and on the third day he rose again. The readers of John would know this. They've read the other Gospels. This is the last of the Gospels. But see how it weaves the whole chapter together? Do you see that? On the third day, the water of purification for self-washing turned into amazing wine to just drink in. 
On the third day, Jesus will rise from the dead, and the temple where you paid for animals to cleanse yourself will be done forever, and his work on the cross will be finished. The veil of the temple is going to be torn. The holy of the holies will be available for all, a gift of Jesus himself, and he's going to do it himself. Not anything a single other person will do. It's only Jesus. Why do I have to insist? Because look what John says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He knows the old way. That we try ourselves with best of intentions to go work on ourselves and clean ourselves and make ourselves presentable. And we're going... And he knows you can't trust it. If you know another person intimately, you know this is true. You've experienced a broken promise. You've experienced a broken act. You've experienced sin. Don't trust. What can I trust? Three days. I can trust that Jesus Christ makes the old new. I can trust the wine that he brings for me to drink. I can trust that salvation is coming and it's coming to all of us. And it's amazing. There's something new today. And with a bang, something new. I like this from Thomas Brooks. He's a Puritan. He wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I want to close with this. The first device that Satan has, Thomas Brooks writes, to keep souls in a sad and doubting and questioning condition and making their life a hell is by causing them to be still pouring and musing upon sin, to mind their sins more than their Savior. Yes, so to mind their sins as to forget. Yes, to neglect their Savior. Their eyes are so fixed on their disease, they cannot see the remedy, be it near. And they do muse upon their debts, so they have neither mind nor heart to think of their surety. This is the first sign today that you have seen, and it is about your surety. (laughs) He is. This is the danger in the old that we care about purifying ourselves. We care about judging that you're cleaner than someone else. That you have the high road, the moral path, the best decision, and it is the road to hell. There's no help there. There's no Mother Teresa's to be found, exalted workers of good that the Lord welcomes in. There's only those who will stop purification of themselves and receive the one who purifies. Not to advance our righteousness, to have none of our own. Not to give them our good deeds, but to have no good deeds to claim of our own. When others accuse, agree readily. You're such a sorry wretch because your hope is in the one who clothes you with great purity. The purity bought with his blood, abundant and wondrous, and we rejoice because that one has come. And this is only the first of his signs. Let that flow over you. Let's pray.